FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. This is an incredibly busy week in politics, as I think most of you uh, know. We've got gubernatorial debates that are going to continue to unfold. The, new, next, the next one is tomorrow night uh, down in Savannah. Uh, there's one next Sunday here in Atlanta that uh, is sponsored by the Atlanta Press Club. That GPB TV, GPB radio, and our web platforms will uh, be carrying on Sunday at 7 o'clock. There, uh, Governor Kemp continues to sign bills and campaign around the state. Uh, the AJC has a brand new poll out. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the details of that that we didn't get to yesterday. So a lot to talk about with a great panel today. So let's get right to it. Uh, Greg Bluestein, the uh, political reporter, one of the political reporters for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my Wednesday partner from the AJC. He is also, of course, the author of Flipped which everybody, including the candidates for governor in the Sunday night debate at WSB, uh, referred to. Everybody else is talking about it as well. Greg, uh, that must have, uh, since you were on that panel, that must have made you smile. Well, I'm glad that it didn't hand the camera to me because I think I wasn't smiling. My face turned beet red. I was not expecting that. And a lot of my friends are now calling me some reporter, which is what uh, the governor called me from the debate stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Some reporter. Well, Greg, thanks for uh, being with us uh, today. Margaret Coker is back with us. Uh, Speaking of Savannah, she, of course, is the editor-in-chief of The Current, a great online uh, publication which covers the Georgia coast, but also delves into uh, news from across Georgia. You know, Margaret, it occurs to me that as long as you've been doing the show, um, I've talked about your credentials as a journalist, but I'm not sure I've spelled them out the way our audience deserves to hear them. You were on a team at the Wall Street Journal that was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Um, you reported for the New York Times. Um, you were at Cox Newspapers uh, earlier in your career. And you're the author of a book called The Spy Master of Baghdad, which um, is a story about... Uh, the Iraqi fight against ISIS. Have I got that right? You have done me justice. Thank you for that great summary. Yeah, I um, I was working very hard to make Savannah my full time life. Um, have had a house here for a very long time, but needed um, you know needed a, a reason um, and a, a paycheck to be able to come back and afford <laughs> to live in coastal Georgia full time. My book contract was that first step back, and um, then we launched the current um, as a result of me being home full time. You can uh, uh, read The Current at, at thecurrentga.org uh, because it's a nonprofit uh, publication. Leo Smith is with us. Leo, of course, uh, worked for quite some time at the state Republican Party uh, dealing with minority outreach. He left the party, now has his own firm, Engaged Futures, where he does government relations work. And, Leo, I always like to say, tries desperately to bring people with a lot of different ideas about life uh, together, right? <laughs> That's right. They say the bridge builders, the bridge gets walked on, but it also gets you to the other side. So we're just trying to get us to the other side of keeping this democratic republic. 
<laughs> okay, well, thanks for being here, Leo. We're very happy to be joined for the first time on our show by Chauncey Alcorn. Um, he is uh, now working at Capital B, which is also an online publication covering African-American news uh, here across the country and here in Atlanta. Chauncey, you too have pretty significant credentials. I think you worked at CNN Business. You uh, worked, did some reporting for the Daily Mail in London, the New York Daily News, and now you're um, uh, at Capital B. So how are you? Thanks for being here, Chauncey. Glad to be here. Yeah, um, worked for the Daily Mail in, um, in their New York office for about eight months, uh, a couple of years ago. But everything else you got pretty much right. <laughs> so uh, very quickly, our, our panel, our, our listeners like to know a little bit about our panelists. Are you are you coming home to Georgia? Are you from here? Um, tell us just a little bit about your journey. Well, I'm originally from uh, the Dayton, Ohio area, a suburb called Hebra Heights, Uh I lived in, uh, got my master's in journalism at the uh, Keeney Graduate School of Journalism in New York City. Worked there for uh, a number of years before uh, relocating to Atlanta um, uh, last year uh, to be closer to family and uh, just uh, looking for a place to settle. Well, we're, we're delighted to uh, have you as part of our panel. Thanks for being here. Um, Greg Bluestein, tomorrow, uh, Governor Kemp continues his bill signing spree. He's going to be in Forsyth County where he'll sign these education measures, which were probably, arguably, the most controversial measures that the legislature took up this session, right? Yeah, I put them right up there with guns, right? The, 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 the permitless carry bill, but you're right. It's his effort to sort of channel Glenn Youngkin, in a sense, um, to focus on educational issues that that A, rev up conservative voters, but B, also he hopes at least will appeal to his more middle-of-the-road voters. And this is legislation that there's a lot of things. There's like four or five. There's multiple pieces of this package. One makes it easier for parents to object to uh, books they, they deem to be obscene. Um, one makes it very – well, seeks to direct how public school teachers talk about race and gender and other quote-unquote divisive concepts. In, uh, in, in, in Georgia classrooms, uh, one allows um, the High School Athletic Association to ban transgender girls from competing in high school girls' sports. Um, and there's others that make it easier for or, or, or intended to make it easier for parents to know about what, what sort of coursework their students are learning. So there's a lot of legislation that brings, in a sense, brings culture wars to the classrooms. Um, Greg, one of the things that has troubled uh, opponents of this measure, of these measures, uh, is the bill which will, in many ways, restrict how teachers talk about issues like race. And and one of the problems there is this notion that uh, teachers shouldn't be teaching white kids that they're responsible for uh, racism, that they themselves are racist, uh, that sort of thing. But it's the language is vague enough that teachers just aren't sure where the boundaries are, Greg. You're exactly right. That's the question that I got in on the debate on Sunday, which was, A, how, should, how, how does Governor Kent think that teachers should, should address issues like slavery, issues like Reconstruction in the classrooms? And, B, does he worry that there will be a chilling effect? Because you're right. I mean, it's vague language, um, and that's a, you know, that can be used against teachers in some sense, right? So does it have a chilling effect? And educators, and he kind of dodged the question, um, but it's something we're hearing from teachers, and especially our education teams are hearing from teachers all the time who are worried that 
just teaching history, that teaching, um, teaching, you know, what, what's already in so many textbooks uh, could be viewed as, as offensive in some way, and it could be blocked from doing so or, or sanctioned or at least or, or, or just criticized for doing so. Margaret? Yeah, it's, um, you know, these, these bills did come at the 11th hour, right? And, and, it, and the, um, the issue of culture wars in schools is not something new um, in the country. It's not, not something new in Georgia. But here in coastal Georgia, it feels very divorced from, from the reality that we're hearing about as our political reporter goes out, um, talks to parents, goes to, um, you know, campaign um, uh, events for school board candidates around here. I mean, we went to um, we went to an event last weekend in Liberty County, which is a majority minority county here, just south of Savannah. And everyone there, both the candidates and parents who showed up, they were number one concern was bullying in schools and how to protect their children from bullies, how to protect teachers from bullies. It had nothing to do with curriculum. It was physical safety for students. Um, here in Chatham County, school board uh, debates are, have, have been going on um, about about some of these issues of curriculum, but also, you know, parents are very concerned about fundamentals, about reading comprehension, about, you know, mathematical abilities. And so there are fundamental issues of the public school system that I think Georgians care about that aren't quite captured in what um, this, this great photo op is going to be for the governor. Chauncey, one of the things that's fascinating about all this, I think, is that Governor Kemp has now, with the budget that passed this session, fulfilled a promise that he made in 2018 that he was going to give teachers $5,000 raises. Um, and, and now he has fulfilled that promise. And, and so does that in an election year, certainly hoping that it will pay a dividend for him when teachers go to vote. But at the same time, uh, some of these education measures are putting teachers in a very difficult position, uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see which prevails, their concerns about how they're being constrained in the classroom as opposed to getting a decent raise. Absolutely. I, I worked on the story about the, the divisive concept bill earlier um, uh, in March, and uh, it's one of my first stories for Cap B. And, uh, yeah, one of the problems that the uh, Georgia Association of Educators and uh, a couple of other nonprofits that work with educators and school administrators, they're worried about, you know, what this, how do they implement this in class? You know, it's going to have a, a dampening effect and there's already a lot of attrition and uh, in the teaching field, the industry, people leaving the industry, a lot of fatigue from the pandemic and um, a lot of other underlying issues going on in the, in the industry. So this is just another thing that they have to worry about. They're not, they're not too sure, you know, there's uh the, the bill as it's presented uh, creates a reporting apparatus that allows um, parents of, of, uh, of students in schools as well as adult students and some uh, other staffers to kind of snitch on their coworkers and uh, their teachers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like if you're going to have to worry about getting in trouble or reprimanded um, on for teaching the subject, why approach it at all? Or even more to the point, you know, we, while we, it hasn't really, um, and the educators' minds that I spoke with um, clearly define what, uh, you know, is what is and isn't allowed. So it makes the teachers not even want to approach the subject. All right, Leo, I saved you for last because you're the Republican on the panel today. You're also African-American. And I'm interested in how you square those two uh, parts of your identity with uh, these education bills. 
And I'm also a Virginian coming from the great state where Thomas Jefferson <laughs> created uh, education legacy um, and the University of Virginia and all the schools that came around it. Um, so look, you know, one of the things that we don't recognize because we are not balancing nurturing with challenge. And certainly America's founding was challenged when Thomas Jefferson included uh, in our original declaration of 28th grievance about slavery and, and Georgia and South Carolina was the holdout. And so we don't know these kinds of histories because we have not made learning the imperative. And that's what we really have this opportunity here with all this discussion, which I think is great. We're like a, in a chrysalis of educational opportunity now because of this robust debate about policy that is in, in, that's animating a lot of interest in education among conservatives all, all, all of a sudden. I think it's good overall. I think it's going to take us to a good place. Um, Margaret, uh, of course, uh, there are other aspects of this, aside from teaching about the history of race in uh, Georgia or in the country. Um, there are provisions that would uh, constrain how you talk about LGBTQ uh, individuals. And uh, Greg pointed out there is uh, the issue of transgender uh, students taking a, a part in, in athletics uh, of the, in, uh, according to the gender that they have transitioned into. Um, and all of this, too, is really playing to the Republican base and part of a national uh, uh, agenda that Republicans in 2022 are advancing. Yeah, there's there's something about um, you know I've, I've well I'm a proud Georgian I've I have uh, tried to revive public service journalism here in a part of Georgia that didn't have it and in part because I personally I don't like the way that national conversations and national politics are trying to cram um, issues down Georgia's throat and having Georgians talk about what is best for Georgia having Georgian reporters talk about what's best for for Georgia is is something that I feel passionately about. Some of the issues that um, that are you know in, in, are incorporated in these bills, like you just said, LGBTQ issues, transgender issues, they feel like these are you know sort of foreign foreign concepts that are coming in to dominate Georgia's airwaves and and Georgian brainwaves. I don't see a whole lot of of organic um, concern about these two issues specifically um, where I live in the state. I feel like these are um, issues that that are becoming talking points that are good for campaigns and not necessarily good for Georgia families. Greg, uh, how does it, this plays well to the base? How does it play in a general election campaign for Republicans? Well, that's going to be a, an interesting question because um, these these nine divisive concept issues that are outlined in this legislation, they're, they're lifted in large part from an executive order that former well, then-President Donald Trump signed prohibiting their use in federal workforce training and became a huge talking point, as Margaret was talking about, uh, in, in Republican media, like Fox News and the like. Um, and and so, look, this helps Governor Kemp um, shore up his conservative base. Everything he's doing right now seems to be helping, trying to aim for that. Um, he's moving uh, even further to, to the right. We, we, we all expected uh, a return to culture wars legislation this session, and certainly that happened. Um, but he's making the bet, too, that this will, this will appeal to middle-of-the-road voters, who are closer to their children's education than they have been in recent years because of virtual schooling. Because now parents like me know a lot more about what's going on in public school classrooms because my kids were home for a year and a half um, doing virtual schooling. So he's placing the bet that because uh, parents are 
or even closer affiliated with that, that, that some of them are outraged. Some of them are not happy with, with, with sorts of um, coursework their students are, are, are getting. Um, how Stacey Abrams and how Democrats will counter, you know, of course, we have Democratic lawmakers who are furious and who fought against this and said um, that this was, a, this was a solution for a problem that, that, wasn't, that wasn't a problem, right? But how Stacey Abrams plans to counter this, we're not quite sure yet because she's focused her me- messaging um, almost primarily about guns and about uh, Medicaid expansion. We haven't really heard her chime in in a major way on this legislation yet. Okay, um, let's let's put this in the context of an issue that's unfolding in Metro Atlanta right now, Chauncey. Um, part of this big package of measures is going to give parents more say in things like the books that are in their children's school library, the books that are taught as part of the curriculum. Uh, Tai Tagami, uh, Greg's colleague at the AJC, uh, wrote a piece for the paper about a fight going on up in Cherokee County right now at a school board meeting. Um, And what's interesting about it, to put it in a larger context, is that some of the Republicans who supported this legislation said, well, this isn't going to cause much of a stir. There will be isolated cases where some parents will want to eliminate some books, but this isn't going to become a major fight. It's a big fight in Cherokee County right now, Chauncey, where uh, parents are uh, came to a school board meeting angry about some of the books. One of the parents had a list of, I think, more than 100 books uh, <laughs> that she felt were inappropriate for her children and other children in the school to be reading. One of the books she held up and is in a photograph in the AJC is Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, her first novel. Talk about what it means Uh, from your point of view, Chauncey, when books by Pulitzer Prize winners, acclaimed writers like Toni Morrison, are now being challenged in the schools? Well, it's just a kind of a a throwback. I know that this has always been something, you know, throughout history. um, You know, there was controversies over books like Huckleberry Finn because of its use of the N-word and other books that, you know, uh, The Color Purple, um, which uh, talks about in... uh, um, uh, homosexuality and um, um, same-sex relationships, uh, things that, you know, are presented that you and I and other people um, our age and older have read in, in high school that now, you know, some of there have always been groups that have kind of raised concerns about this, uh, conservative groups, um, evangelical groups. And, uh, yeah, I think to the point now, um, the moral panic that kind of erupted in, um, in uh, the wake of George Floyd's murder in 2020 with uh Act, uh, activist uh, uh, Christopher Rufo going on Fox News and talking about CRT and presenting that and President Trump kind of capitalizing. That's kind of, um, you know, expanded to this, like, um, full-blown panic about anything that, you know, topics about race. And again, the confusion, um, and some argue deliberate confusion over what CRT is um, and distortion of, of uh, the facts around that concept of now risen to the point where individuals, uh, you know, don't really understand what CRT is and they think that anything that addresses it is a concern. There are also, you know, this culture war uh, that's been kind of fought across the country with, um, you know, uh, you see what's going on down in Florida right now with the uh, so-called Don't Say Gay bill and Disney and things of that nature as uh, major corporations have kind of weighed in a lot more on political issues in the last few years. And they have uh, in, in uh, years past. 
So it's basically just kind of a, a, a you know, a, an uproar over this. Um, I don't know where it's going to shake out. I just know every two to four years, uh, conservatives seem to find issues like this to kind of rally their base. And uh, it's going to, uh, I, I do believe it's going to have an impact on election day in November. Absolutely. Uh, Leo, I, I'm really glad that Chauncey pointed out that this is a battle on both the left and the right. Here in Georgia, it's the right that is looking at which books should and shouldn't be in schools. In California, we talked about this on the show a week ago, a school district uh, banned uh, Huckleberry Finn because uh, of the N-word, um, and they ba- banned also Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird because of the depiction of uh, the uh, of the character who Atticus Finch defends in in that book. So it is going on on both sides of the aisle, but Leo here, it's from the right. Yeah, and then Bill, as you know, I'm involved in starting new schools in Georgia, Atlanta Classical, Northwest Classical up in uh, Cobb now. And, you know, one of the things is, is that we have to look at the, the reality that this is, as Chauncey says, coming from both the right and the left. And it is, again, a healthy discussion that's going to drive parent involvement now. The governor is listening to what's bubbling up from the grassroots. And I listened in to Cobb County's, um, you know, the exurb of Atlanta. I listened to Cobb County School Board debate. And Stephen George, one of the candidates for Cobb County School Board, made an argument that actually you would not expect from 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 right-leaning conservatives, he said, maybe the Bible should be considered a book of literature, as he's p- pitching himself, saying, well, if you talk about the Bible as an act of literature, then you actually are bringing those values back into schools. So you can't ban Huck Finn and stuff like that and then bring the Bible back in as a book of literature. So, so really, who knows which way this will go? But it is something that's going to require a new level of bureaucracy in our schools because now someone's got to manage all this fact finding and you know hunting for the bad book. Um, but, uh, hopefully, we'll come out of this with people having a more solid understanding of what education is. Uh, Greg, to finish up this part of the conversation, I, I was especially struck. Uh, and have been by the efforts in a number of schools to eliminate Toni Morrison novels um, because she writes very frankly about the African-American experience. That novel, The Bluest Eye, her first novel, is about her hometown, Lorain, Ohio, and it's about a young girl who is very, very dark-skinned and is treated like being, like, badly. She's marginalized by her own people, her own African-American friends in the community uh, called ugly, not worthy. She develops a terrible inferiority complex. Um, And the book does deal with incest and rape and very hard issues. But it's a book that really, for an old white guy like me, teaches me something about the African-American lived experience that I get more from that than than almost any other form of uh, thinking about race in this country. Yeah, and it's a rite of passage for so many students to, to read that book and, and so many others. Um, yeah. And even some of the critics um, have acknowledged they didn't read the book. they just looking at selected passages uh, that are being bandied about on social media. And I want to just leave you with this quote from Lily Karas, a 17-year-old junior at Sequoia High School, who uh, my colleague Tai Tagami quoted mm. in that story about the book banning uh, process. She said, books stand paramount as a weapon against ignorance. So she's like so many other teenagers who said, hey, 
you know, let, let us read, let us read these books that, that, that so many others have read. There, there's, there's, there's no reason um, in their view to try to forbid and restrict these types of uh, literature. Yeah. All right. All right. I, I want to get to the first break of the show. By the way, the reason I made that comment about people like Toni Morrison is I went to an all-white high school in Skokie, Illinois. And so my first exposure to the African-American experience was through literature long before I got to know uh, friends who happened to be uh, black. So um, we'll continue this conversation, I'm sure, in the weeks and months ahead as we see how it really affects schools like what's going on up in Cherokee County. But for right now, let's take a break. Come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Chauncey Elkhorn from Capital B, which is a newer online news source here in Georgia. Leo Smith, uh, Republican and CEO of Engaged Futures. Margaret Coker, Editor-in-Chief of The Current. And Greg Bluestein all join me on today's show. By the way, uh, Chauncey, give us a quick description of what Capital B uh, is, uh, what the mission is. And I think you can get to it at what, CapitalB.org, if I got that, or CapitalBnews.org, right? Absolutely. Um, capital B um, was a, was a, B stands for Black. It was a, a, the brainchild of our uh, co-founders uh, co Akoto uh, Ofori Ata and uh, Lauren Williams, uh, two esteemed journalists and uh, people who worked in the industry for a number of years for several legacy outlets. Um, and uh, basically, the vision of it was to kind of address um, um, issues, um, especially local issues uh, that affect African Americans across the country. Um, in a more robust way. Uh, we've obviously seen um, in the last couple of years, especially that uh, uh, throughout the pandemic, that a lot of pervasive issues that have existed in uh, America for almost since the founding of the country um, th that affect African-Americans differently, that don't always get the uh, a focus on, um, you know, when we're talking about issues of policy um, and news coverage. And uh, we're trying to fill a gap and coverage that exists across the country and it's focusing on a lot of uh, local issues as, as in addition to larger macro issues that affect um, African-Americans in particular. I, I think it's very exciting to see the expanded uh, news media uh, universe in Georgia now. We've got The Current down on the coast. We've got Capital B here. You've got Axios Atlanta starting to uh, uh, do more and more reporting. So I think it's very exciting. And I and I also love the fact that uh, those of you who work for those organizations can occasionally be uh, panelists on our show. Uh, Greg, the NRA uh, is endorsing Brian Kemp for governor. Uh, not surprising after he uh, passed what you said earlier might be the most controversial measure in the session, the so-called constitutional carry law. Um, but it is interesting to look at the history of what happened uh, when he was running against Casey Cagle. Yes, uh, Casey Cagle, who was then the lieutenant governor in, back in 2018, basically bent over backwards to try to get the NRA's endorsement. He thought it would be a game changer. Back then, he was going for the outright victory over Brian Kemp. He was trying to get to the 50% plus one margin he needed to avoid a runoff and felt like the NRA could help him do that. And so went so far as to block legislation that would have helped Delta Airlines because Delta ended a discount for NRA members. Um, so all sorts of drama, all sorts of controversy. In the end, the NRA endorsed Casey Cagle, and in the end, it didn't matter because the endorsement was so heavily overshadowed 
by Donald Trump's endorsement of Brian Kemp. Seems like a different era, doesn't it, now that we're talking about Trump not uh, backing <laughs> Kemp in any form or fashion. Um, but in some ways, it was full circle or comeuppance or cathartic or however you want to see it. But it was really interesting to be there on Monday when Governor Kemp got NRA's endorsement all over again. And NRA said that they'd spend money, they'd send out mailers, they'd do advertisements, they'll do all sorts of different ways to, to target uh, its most likely supporters to go back Brian Kemp in this primary. Margaret, once again, another incredibly controversial bill. Democrats fought it, uh, but of course didn't have much power to stop Republicans from passing it. And it is, of course, ironic that one of the things Kemp and other Republicans are running on is public safety as our cities are overrun with gun violence and at the same time uh, passing this constitutional carry bill. Margaret? Yeah, I, I would also say, you know, getting endorsed by a very controversial organization to boot. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I think it was just last summer. The NRA was dissolved um, by a, a New York judge because as a nonprofit organization, they were found to have basically, you know, misspent um, millions of dollars um, and, and, you know, uh, had, had violated their charter as a nonprofit organization. So there is a lack of accountability at a very high level of that organization that members don't seem to have uh, really digested. And the fact that the endorsement still carries weight here in Georgia, I don't know, it's, it's it says a lot to me about the way in which accountability has fallen off um, our radar as Americans in terms of a core political value for candidates. But to the constitutional carry itself, there's also, to me, you know, just a striking, um, you know, a striking hypocrisy about the issue of public safety. There's so many police departments, there's so many chiefs of police around America who have come out in favor of what they call common sense gun control. Um, constitutional carry does not seem to fit that that definition that law enforcement has about common sense gun control. And so, you know, there's there's obviously, um, you know, the rules of, of campaign politics are different um, than general rules of, of our legislative session. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 a. It's going to be striking to see when we were talking about journalists like me are talking about the rise of gun violence this year, how many cases are going to be about people who did not have permits, people who shot themselves accidentally here in Effingham County, just next door to Savannah. Last week, there was a case of an assistant DA in Effingham County who had his gun at work, accidentally shot himself at work at the DA's mm -hmm. office because he was trying to show off his new pistol. So these things happen. Um, guns don't kill people. People kill people with guns. Uh, Chauncey, back when Governor Kemp signed this measure, you wrote a piece for Capital B. The headline was, it's going to be a travesty. Why Georgia's new gun law is troubling for black residents. I'd love for you to talk about that. But I also think it's important to point out that in that story, you certainly make it clear that uh, that that African-Americans are buying guns in bigger numbers than before as well. This isn't just a Republican or Democratic issue, black, white, Asian, whatever. A lot of people are buying more guns. And yet your story points to why this uh, law is going to be troubling for the black community. Absolutely. So it's been a very contentious issue that I followed for some time in terms of African-American gun rights. Uh, they don't really have. Uh, a natural uh, organization like the NRA, which historically has never really stood up for the gun rights of African-Americans. Um, one of the few times that they uh, 
supported gun control was with the, the Mumford Act and the, uh, I believe it was the set, late 70s with Ronald Reagan was the governor of California and the Black Panthers were marching with their rifles out and, they, and uh, that was the NRA supported uh, gun control in that instance. And uh, right now what you have with the pandemic, there was a, a lot of panic, uh, a, a lot of apocalyptic theories going around, people buying guns in, in greater numbers than ever before um, on, uh, on record. Um, and a lot of that was fueled by African-American uh, first-time gun buyers as well as women. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's led to, you know, concerns about um, how African-Americans will be treated um, when they do have guns. Uh, I pointed out in that story that there are a number of, uh, or at least uh, two African-Americans, uh, Mark Wilson um, in Statesboro and uh, another young lady who are right now facing, um, you know, uh, criminal charges and, uh, or convictions for um, exercising their Second Amendment rights in self-defense. And, you know, that, again, there's not really anybody standing up for their gun rights. Um, but in, in addition to that, you know, you've had situations like uh, the uh, uh, murder of Ahmaud Arbery, um, as well as in other parts of the country, Amir Locke, who uh, was, uh, you know, carrying a gun legally when he was killed by police who raided his home. So there's, uh, you know, there's a concern that the while this has been passed and it's supposed to be something that helps everybody, it, uh, it's not really ever been an issue that African-Americans have had a lot of help on. And there are fears that you know, there's going to be a lot of vigilant or I wouldn't necessarily say a lot, but there's going to be more uh, vigilante justice. A lot of the uh, individuals who, you know, uh, I was at a Republican event over the weekend and, you know, there was concerns about rising crime uh, in uh, places like Metro Atlanta seeping out into uh, more rural areas uh, that are predominantly white and people needing to have guns in those areas to defend themselves from criminals. So it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Leo, jump in. You know, we have in Georgia um, one of the largest chapters of the National African American Gun Association, which I was happy to um, host them um, in their founding uh, here in, in Atlanta. Um, in 2017 for the NRA convention where I hosted multiple events with a cross-section of African-American, Latino, and Asian uh, minority engagement um, that was highly attended. And we had billboards all over the city where African-American celebrities, et cetera, were talking about conservation, um, you know, provision of life through hunting, safety courses, et cetera. This is a growing issue. It is not as right or left as people really think it is. Emotionally, we talk about it right or left, but when you deal with the fact of sportsman licensing and things like that, this is not that extreme of an issue that can be used as a wedge. So I'm looking forward to the data um, on what actually creates less crime, what people want to do when it comes to self-defense, et cetera, and what the impact of constitutional carry will be on that. Again, a school board member actually started talking about Second Amendment rights as their candidacy for school board. Now, I think that a gun in a classroom carried by a teacher who is well-trained should be stored properly, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, again, we have to have these conversations, and then we have to look at the data. Greg, why don't we get the last word from you on this before we move on? Yeah, look, we see we see candidates for all sorts of offices that have nothing to do with those issues bring up those issues. We've seen Secretary of State candidates talk about abortion <laughs> and and Labor Commissioner candidates talk about gun rights and all that. And just to rev up the base, but that's what's that's what's happening right now is that you know candidates from both sides of the aisle who are in very competitive contests are looking for anything they can they can 
Um, they're seizing on any issue they can to try to gin up the base uh, because that's where we are right now. But the question is, in the general election, will we see, start to see those candidates move towards the middle? And we didn't really see that as much in 2018. We saw the candidates stay to their their, their, their bases, their, their polls. Um, uh, and, you know, I don't know if that will change dramatically in 2022 because we have, we've, we're the most politically divisive state in the nation, and we've got one of the most politically polarized <laughs> electorates in the nation. So we'll see if that continues. All right. Uh, why don't we do this? Let's get to our final break of the show. When we come back, uh, I really do want to uh, take a look at some more of the data that we got from the uh, HAC poll, uh, which came out yesterday morning, specifically in terms of Herschel Walker. So we'll do that after these messages. Greg Blustein, we spent some time on the show yesterday, uh, particularly focused on the AJC University of Georgia poll, which shows that Brian Kemp continues uh, in the polling to have a substantial lead over David Perdue. What, 52 to 27, something like that? I don't have the exact yeah, numbers, but I'm close. Yeah, uh, 53. By the way, Mark Roundtree of Landmark Communications, who polls, too, we pointed out his poll on the show last week, and one of our panelists said, oh, well, that's an outlier. There's no way that Kemp is leading by that much. Roundtree sent me a note yesterday saying, so much for being an outlier. (laughs) Anyhow, so Kemp does have a substantial lead, Greg, right? Yeah, Kemp has a substantial lead. Um, it's 26 or so points, but the more important part is it's above the 50% threshold he needs to avoid a runoff. Yeah. And, you know, there's a 3% margin of error, and a lot, a lot could change in the next four weeks or so. Um, but Kemp is going into this with all the momentum, right? He's got the money. He's got the media attention. He's got the outside help. And uh, the important part, too, is that this wasn't, you know, as much as that panelist might have said this was an outlier, Polls have generally shown him with a giant lead, um, and several of the yeah. internal polls we've seen also show him above 50%. So he's going for the knockout punch right now. Um, he's saying that his biggest concern is complacency, not necessarily um, David Perdue's challenge. And um, he doesn't want to get into an unpredictable June runoff where, as we've seen, the number two person, uh, especially with Trump's support, can roar back and, 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 and claim victory. Okay, so um, uh, let's move on to the least surprising finding in your poll, and that's that Herschel Walker has what is virtually an insurmountable lead over his Republican opponents. There is nothing likely to happen, even scandal, given that we know there's been a lot of dirty laundry already aired about Herschel Walker. Even scandal is unlikely to dislodge him from a victory in the Republican uh, Senate contest, right? Yeah, he is in such a commanding position right now. He's at 67% in the AJC poll. And again, that's not an outlier. We've seen polls that have shown him around 70 in the 60s. There's one poll that showed him um, around 58% of the vote, but that's now seen as the outlier. And, and look, I mean, that reflects everything that the, the Walker campaign is seeing internally as well. That's why they're not talking about um, their rivals. He's not mentioning Gary Black's name or or Latham Sadler's name, or Kelvin King's name. And in fact, in our poll, Gary Black, who is a three-time statewide elected official, right? He's not some nobody. Um, he's only at 7%, and about two-thirds of Republican voters know too little about him even to form an opinion. Um, 
And so that's the challenge ahead for anyone trying to bring um, Herschel Walker into a runoff is that he's way above the 50% threshold and none of the opponents have any sort of name recognition. And even Gary Black, the three-time uh, elected official, statewide elected official who's garnered millions of votes over his political career. Uh, Leo, is this a good thing for Georgia Republican Party that Herschel Walker's cruising to the GOP uh, nomination? Well, the party's uh, responsibility is to elect Republicans, and they don't really have. A, they're agnostic. They're somewhat atheists when it comes to the value of that and the impact of that when it comes to the moral polity. So that is, uh, you know, those are two different issues. So it's good for the Republican Party. They've got a strong candidate against Warnock, the Democrat. It is uh, something of a challenge because you have really talented, great talented candidates. Um, and uh, and Nathan Sadler, for instance, just such a great pedigree of someone who looks like a statesman on paper in every way. But, you know, Nathan's going to be spending a lot of money coming soon and, uh, and this week. And so we're going to get to know him better. So that bodes well for the Republican Party in the future that you have, you know, this really strong, young, um, new idea with great pedigree people um, who ran in this race. And uh, it's going to be interesting and good for the Republican Party. For Herschel, I expect his numbers to actually probably even get stronger because I think now he's starting to sort of package his commentary in a way that he'll probably start out with podcasters and stuff like that, Greg. Um, he'll, you know, these safer environments where he's not really dealing with journalists, but people who are happy to have him on the stage with him. He's got an event coming up on the 7th at Park Bench um, in the Battery. So. You know, it's going to be good for him as, as he begins to become more affable to people. Chauncey? Yeah, I, I, I find it fascinating uh, that people are uh, seem to be so surprised by Herschel Walker's success. I, I remember uh, raising this uh, with some of my colleagues, uh, of, of, you know, back in March when there was one poll that showed, you know, he was uh, leading – uh, Raphael Warnock in a hypothetical matchup at the time. And it seems, you know, if you think about it, it's not really that hard to, to understand. This is a state that has, you know, voted for a Democrat um, center uh, prior to 2020, um, you know, for 30 plus years. Uh, if you took the Herschel Walker off and you just put a generic R there, you know, and, and this is a midterm election cycle, Democrats tend to turn out every four years, not every two years. Republicans show up in greater numbers in midterms. So there's a lot of evidence, and in addition to the disenchantment right now that a lot of people have with uh, the Democratic Party nationally, uh, with President Joe Biden's approval ratings being low. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, data to show that whoever was running Republican was going to, you know, uh, potentially defeat, um, or I shouldn't say defeat, would be competitive uh, with, with uh, Mr. Warnock. Um, the only issue here is it's Herschel Walker, you know, but that's... Uh, <laughs> Um, good and bad because, you know, he's uh, obviously a, someone who's a hometown hero in Georgia, won a Heisman Trophy, very famous. So the name recognition plays a huge factor in addition to he was endorsed by Donald Trump. So, you know, that plays well with the Republican base. So that's a recipe for him to easily, you know, be out in front. The question that remains is whether or not he can maintain that and uh, survive in a general election. Um, I, I would uh, caution people who would, you know, dismiss him because this was a similar kind of thing with Donald Trump. People had the same kind of, you know, oh, this is a joke. It's not serious. 
And, uh, you know, we're, here we are in 2020 um, after uh, Trump was, in, was president for four years. So it's, it's something that definitely should not be dismissed. I was at a rally uh, with uh, Mr. Uh, Walker over the weekend uh, in Cartersville. And, uh, you know, I can certainly see why the Republican base loves him. He has a very much, uh, he's a uh, very evangelical, um, talks a lot about his faith. Um, and he speaks in a way that, you know, uh, kind of reminds me of the appeal Sarah Palin had um, during uh, the 2008 election cycle. I'm sorry, was that 2008 or 2012? When, uh, well, <laughs> during her election cycle run with, um, with uh, John McCain. That was eight. So, um, <laughs> so I, I definitely think there's something that people should not um, underestimate Herschel Walker. Margaret. Yeah, I want to go back to the complacency um, issue that I think it was Greg that brought up. You know, we haven't seen a lot of Governor Kemp in coastal Georgia. We have seen a whole lot of David Perdue. And the people that show up for Perdue are incredibly passionate about him. Um, the AJC poll results, I think, were, came, uh, were conducted before the first debate. And if there's anything that encapsulates what that debate was on Sunday night, it was passion. And that's not something that goes hand in hand with the name David Perdue very often. So, you know, tomorrow here in Savannah, the second debate, I don't know, like if, if that same David Perdue shows up, uh, that that might help uh, win more support for him. You know, really, it comes out to who shows up on May 24th and, and turns out to vote. On the second issue, you know, if, if Governor issue, uh, sorry, if Governor Kemp does actually uh, win the primary, I'm sort of interested in how that Republican ballot is going to look, right? I mean, Governor Kemp and Herschel Walker have not been natural um, bedfellows when it comes to uh, which side of the, Repo the state Republican Party they have been courting. Um, again, here um, closer to, to where I am, the one and only time I've seen those two together has been at Wayne Dasher's um, law enforcement appreciation picnic that took place about two weeks ago um, here in, in Gainesville, Georgia. You know, both of them showed up. Both of them had their own supporters. And there wasn't a whole lot of interaction, as far as I can tell, from people who were there. But the fact that they could show up in the same place and not come to uh, blows or not uh, not turn out a, um, an, an hour-long uh, um, fist fight and, and bickering session like Purdue and Kemp showed up on Sunday. I don't know. Maybe that shows that, that they could come together on a ballot and really turn out a majority of Republicans instead of just their bases come November. Really interesting. Uh, Greg, let's go back for a minute to uh, Brian Kemp and David Purdue, since they will face off again tomorrow night. And since you were on the panel Sunday night, um, one of the things that I was a bit surprised by, and I'd love your take on this, was that um, we know that Purdue was going to be aggressive from the very start of the debate, and he couldn't have been more aggressive. I mean, with that opening statement of the election was stolen, as an example. But um, Brian Kemp, who has a record that he is proud to say conservatives will support him on, uh, played right into it. He, he allowed Purdue, I thought to uh, force him to answer all of these uh, fallacious arguments that Purdue made about the election being rigged, Kemp not overturning the results when he had the opportunity to do it. Do you think the campaign felt they had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Purdue on that rather than turn away from that and talk about his record? Yeah, look, I mean, it, his challenge is that, A, he's got nowhere to go really but down in these polls, right? I mean, in these debates, because their internal polls and all the other allied Republican groups' internal polls 
basically showed that um, the same as the AJC poll, that he's just above the 50% mark or hovering around it. Um, so he's in this kind of dangerous zone right now in that sense, that David Perdue has got nothing to lose. You know, he's throwing everything he can at, at Governor Kemp. He's making all sorts of accusations. He's opening debates with lies that the election was stolen and rigged, right? That was his first remark in the debate. Um, whereas Governor Kemp, he has, he's, he's got more to lose. So A, he wants to show he's a fighter, but B, he also doesn't want to get into a mudslinging match where he's, he's sort of looked at as the, um, you know, just as, as going uh, head-to-head in these, these blows that Stacey Abrams will use against them in November. And I think that the governor definitely got flustered. I think that um, I think the emotions of just being on the same stage with this bitter rival who he hasn't seen it this close since December, since, since David Perdue got in the contest, and after what governor said, he promised he wouldn't. You know, the governor said that David Perdue promised him face-to-face that he wouldn't challenge him. So I think that that, that, that sort of toxicity, that animosity just oozed outside the surface uh, during this entire debate. I'm curious to see if Thursday and the Sunday at the GPB Atlanta Press Club debate, if you will see a different camp um, trying to be a little bit more measured, gubernatorial, or if we'll see this sort of slugfest that we saw earlier this week. Exactly. Exactly. Kemp has the power of incumbency and kind of could bring a cloak of dignity as the governor of the state of Georgia. It will be interesting to see how he comports himself in the next two debates. Um, We're almost out of time, but Sam Burmistaw's brought something to my attention that I really want to mention for just a couple of minutes. Today is the anniversary of the birth of Coretta Scott King. She was the first woman, the first African-American to lie in state at the Georgia Capitol Rotunda. She was born in 1927 in Alabama. Uh, she studied music education at Antioch College in Ohio, a real liberal, liberal hotbed, by the way. Um, she was at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston, and it was there that she met uh, Dr. King when he was a Boston University PhD student. They got married in 1953. They moved to Atlanta in 1960. And we know that Coretta Scott King, uh, in, in, uh, during his time as the great civil rights leader that Dr. King was, was actively involved in supporting him. And after his assassination, continued to be an important force in civil rights. And so I'm, I'm really glad that Sam uh, pointed out that today is the anniversary of her birth. She was a towering figure in civil rights and certainly in Atlanta history. Um, that's it. We're out of time. Uh, Chauncey Alcorn, I hope you enjoyed being here. We'd love to have you back. Margaret Coker, always a pleasure to have you. You too, Leo Smith and Greg Bluestein. Thank you for uh, being with us on the show today. We are completely out of time, but we'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow and hope you all can be with us. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>